Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chaney. Welcome back, Food and Faith Podcast listeners. This is Derek Weston, 33.3% of your co-hosts. Um, I am here today with Laura Allery, who was on the show uh, not too long ago with uh, reading her book, What Grew in Larry's Garden, which was, uh, as I said then, and, and probably remains true, one of my all-time favorite podcast experiences was Laura reading the book on, on the show. Um, Laura has a, has a new book, um, and it's called Breathe, A Child's Guide to Ascension, Pentecost, and the Growing Time. And there are so many wonderful themes uh, throughout this book that just fits so well with uh, conversations that we have on the podcast that uh, I'm really excited to have Laura back on the show. So Laura, welcome back and thank you for being with us again. Thank you, Derek. I am very, very happy to be here this morning talking with you. Uh, so just a little background, Laura has loved books since she was barely big enough to clamber up the stairs to the bookmobile that rolled into her Halifax neighborhood once a week. At school, she made her own books out of of paper, mucilage, and crayons. The first story she can remember writing was about a little girl who kept spilling paint and having to figure out how to turn the messes into pictures, a good rule for life. These days, Laura considers herself very lucky to work in a beautiful library and write her own books. They look more professional than the homemade ones, but the joy of creating them is much the same. Laura also loves to sing, play guitar, a work in progress, and try to keep up with what, with what her three children are reading. She makes her home in Toronto, where, along with clover and a whole lot of dandelions, she does her best to grow kindness. Um, so we normally ask the question, uh, what is your geography? But we've, we've, we've heard your geography and <laughs> while we, and, 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 and while I, I, and I definitely commend the last episode, uh, that you were on to, uh, our listeners, if they haven't listened to it already. Um, but what I would love to hear is what's the geography of this book? What is the geography of breathe? Where, uh, what shaped this, what formed this obviously formed by the liturgical season, but mm-hmm. what's the geography of of this new book? Well, when I knew that the question about geography might be coming, I started thinking about this book in particular, because I think probably more than anything I've ever written, Breathe um, was shaped by and reflects the physical landscape in which it came to be. Hmm. And that was Prince Edward Island, Little Island, Canada's smallest province off the East Coast. And the first thing that comes to mind when I think of PEI is wind. It is always windy. Mm. Um, And that's one of the things I love about the place um, because I I experience wind as um, enlivening, cleansing, energizing, playful. Um, It can also be destructive. I mean, I have been there during hurricane season as well. Um, But in the summertime, the wind is just this constant presence. PEI is also probably, um, well, really the only place in the world where I'm regularly around fire, like sitting around the campfire Mm. at night. Mm. So those two Pentecostal symbols are are right there with me. Um, But also growth, like PEI, um, sometimes called the Garden of the Gulf. Mm -hmm. It's 
it's an agricultural province. There's I mean, a lot of its economy is based on large scale commercial agriculture, but there are also a lot of small scale farms, organic farms, um, and not a day would go by when I wasn't walking, you know, walking by the roadside, watching the lupins in the ditches go through their life cycles. I just, um, it's one of those places where I feel very close to and part of the natural world. Mm. And that was an important part of how this book took shape. Um, if I can say something else. I'm moving from physical landscape to mental landscape because mm. the other thing that's I mean, I've, I, for many, many years, I've spent summers on PEI, so that's also a chance for me to do a lot of reading. So I happened to be reading two books that also kind of made their way into Breathe. Um, and the first one was The Universal Christ by Father Richard Rohr. Um, and, you know, sometimes you read a book and you can feel it shaping your thought process, but other times you're reading and... It's almost as if it's making you aware of something you already knew but didn't really articulate yet. So that was kind of my experience of this book, um, especially around the idea of incarnation. So, I mean, I've been raised um, and taught that incarnation refers only to Jesus. So what matters about incarnation is its uniqueness. Word made flesh, God manifest in one time and one place for a particular saving purpose. Um, but I think over the years, I guess I've started to think that maybe that got everything backward. <laughs> um, and that instead of confining holiness to one place, just imagine if we had been learning to see it every place. Yeah. Um, like even this past Lent, um, I came upon this poem. Um, and part of it is the worst thing we ever did was put God in the sky out of reach, pulling the divinity from the leaf, sifting out the holy from our bones. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a wow for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the other thing I was reading at the time was uh, Living Buddha, Living Christ by Thich Nhat Hanh. And I mean, Thich Nhat Hanh, he's got this genius for simplicity. Sometimes it's almost childlike in the way he expresses himself <laughs> yes. but but there's something profound underneath it and and in this book one of the things that struck me was when he was talking about eating um and i guess um having a deeper perception of what it what you're doing when you're eating so he's talking about eating a berry and being very very present to it so he says you know he's looking deeper and thinking about everything that contributed to making that berry so the minerals in the earth the fungi that broke down the soil the energy of the sun the clouds the wind that carried them um, he says all of it is in that berry if you just look at it the right way so I know I've been going on at length. About no, it's great. It's all good. <laughs> but there was something about the combination of those two books and then the physical landscape that, was, I don't know, it kind of made everything around me sort of shimmer with this divine energy. Um, so all of this stuff is churning around inside me, and I'm trying to think about how do I write this book about Pentecost. So I decided, well, what I'm going to do is move beyond just the that arc of the liturgical year and try to... Um, turn this into a book about the spirit that connects everything. So a story about the longing and interdependence 
and all of the love and the responsibility that flows from that. Um, and I actually wrote another book at the same time, which is kind of funny because I don't usually do that, but um, I wrote a, a nonfiction book about food webs, but it's got a decidedly mystical slant to it. So, um, you know, one of them is kind of the expressed in religious language and symbolism, and then the other is uh, more scientific, but they're, they're kind of siblings in a way. So that's my long answer. <laughs> well, we'll have to have you on for that one too. Um, <laughs> no, that's that's a wonderful answer, and 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 two. I mean, two great inspirations. Um, Richard Rohr's writing has has been has shown up for me at at particularly important uh, uh, crossroads in my life in my mm -hmm. life. So appreciate him. And and Thich Nhat Hanh also has a book on mindful eating um, that also brings a lot of these elements out um, about um, really taking the time to be present with food. And, and that's a lot, actually. And it's, and it's surprising, but but pretty obvious once you once you kind of spell it out in the book and, and put it into the story um that that pentecost and then the the move into ordinary time um all of those are kind of the it's it's marking the growing season and it's mm -hmm. marking the 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 time when our our awareness of nature and our awareness of food are are, are most heightened or at least should be yes um and so it was it actually felt like completely appropriate to have this book um a lot of it at a, in a garden setting a lot of it at the table a mm -hmm. lot of it uh involving food uh it, it just makes a lot of sense and hearing you talk about um prince edward's island um uh, another thing that that really comes forward um as you're explaining Prince Edward's Island is you talk a lot about the movement of seasons. Um, how do you, uh, not being as familiar with, with that geography, how do you experience the, the move and change of seasons in Prince Edward's Island? Well, strangely enough, I, I don't have as much, uh, I don't have as much experience with the change of seasons because I've always been in PEI in the summers. Okay. Um, now that's not to say I don't, uh, I guess I've been there in the winter a few times, um, but my summers there have been long because I spent many, many years at home with my children. So I wasn't working and my schedule was a, a lot more um, flexible. Um, so, you know, I mentioned the lupins specifically, lupins grow wild in the ditches. Mm -hmm. And so if we arrived in June, I was just in time to see the lupins blooming. And then I would, I would watch them um, as, as we pass through the summer, they start to, they get gray. <laughs> they're, like, they're like the rest of us. They, they, turn, from <laughs> these, they turn from these um, very vibrant, white, pink, purple blossoms, and then they gradually fade and they, the seed pods form. And they're these uh, sort of, hairy little um, gray pods. And the way they scatter their seeds is they, they sort of um, spontaneously burst open. So you could be walking along the, the path and all of a sudden you just sort of hear these little sounds and the, the lupins are, are scattering their seeds. And there was something um, 
and also that the air changes, the, the color of the sky changes. The other thing that um, I'm always very conscious of in PEI, especially around late August, is the geese mm. because they start to, to gather and get ready for their migration. And what a cacophonous um, <laughs> sound when, when a whole bunch of them are in a, in a marsh or um, like it's in some ways, I guess I, it's a sad sound for me because I associate it with, with leaving a place that I really love. Um, that was stream of consciousness. I, <laughs> <laughs> no, it was great. <laughs> like I, I grew up in Nova Scotia, so um, fall, autumn in Nova Scotia tends to be um, just very vibrant with color. So it's funny that I think of the, I, I associate the end of summer with PEI with sadness, but then um, autumn is very energizing. That's kind of, <clears throat> that's more of the new year for me, I think because it's school, right? Everything's starting, it's yep. new. Um, but yeah, all of these, all of these natural cues, whether it's the feel of the air, the particular shade of blue of the sky, um, the sound of certain birds, the smells, um, they all have, they're all emotional, um, I was going to say triggers, but then that sounds negative, um, cues. Yeah. yeah. Um, so would you mind reading a little bit from the breathe out section of, of your book? No, absolutely. So this is how it begins. <clears throat> the day of Pentecost is coming. The church is changing color. The white and gold of Easter will soon burst into flaming red, then cool to green. The world outside has its own seasons. It is changing colors too. In many places, the whites and browns of winter have been folded away for another year. Colors are bursting out everywhere. Wildflowers in ditches, birds flashing bright wings, dandelions popping out in unexpected places. Everything is greening. It feels like the sleeping world is waking up again, taking a deep breath, getting ready to grow. And then I go on and there's um, this book has a back and forth structure. So it goes from retellings of biblical stories to contemporary reflections from the point of view of a child. <clears throat> so we're gonna skip way ahead. <laughs> When they felt the spirit in them, connecting them with Jesus, his friends began to say and do the things that Jesus had done. They healed. They welcomed strangers. They shared what they had. They listened and understood. They forgave. They loved with open hearts. The spirit flowed through them, breathed through them, changed the world through them sometimes in surprising ways. Ananias and Saul were both surprised by the Spirit. Ananias was a follower of Jesus. Saul dead set against him. Ananias was open-hearted and wide-eyed, always seeing sameness beneath difference. Saul was sharp-minded with a keen eye for opposites, good, bad, right, wrong, inside, outside, us, them. Saul saw Ananias and his sort as a threat to God's ordered world, so he set out to hunt them down. 
When Ananias heard Saul was coming, he locked the doors and held his breath. But when have locked doors ever stopped the spirit? When those doors were blown wide open, Ananias gave up trying to hide and went searching for Saul. But the spirit found Saul first, ambushed him, knocked him flat, made him see stars. The spirit said, why are you doing this? What are you afraid of? Maybe they were both afraid. Saul, breathless and blind, at the mercy of the one he had wanted to destroy. Ananias, still wary, but trying to love his enemy. In the end, love proved stronger than fear. Ananias brought Saul into his own home, looked after him, listened to his story, tried to understand him. Even his name changed. Saul became Paul. And when his eyes were finally open, Paul looked at Ananias and saw a friend. Paul was changed in more ways than one. Many years later, Paul wrote to some friends about how you know when the spirit is at work. Picture a tree. Its roots drink water from the ground. Sunlight falls on its leaves. The wind carries pollen from blossom to blossom. Soon the branches are heavy with sweet fruit. Then you know the tree is full of life. It is the same with you. When the spirit is in you, you can see the good things that grow. Kindness, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, peace, joy, love. These are the fruits of the spirit. Maybe Paul was remembering Ananias and the sweet taste of kindness. The season after Pentecost lasts for a long time, over half the circle of the year. In church, we call it ordinary time. I'm not sure why. There are no big holidays during ordinary time, but life in the spirit is not ordinary. Amazing things are happening. The seeds we planted in the spring are waking up. Beans are popping out of the soil. Flowers are blooming. In the pond close by, tadpoles are becoming frogs. Everything is growing and changing. We feed our garden with rich black earth from the compost pile. All through the winter, we collected scraps, vegetable peelings, eggshells, coffee grounds. Stirring it was my job. I never liked the wriggly worms or clouds of flies, but I love how the bits and pieces we throw away turn into something good, something that makes our garden grow. I wonder if even that is the spirit at work. One of my favorite parts of summer is spending a week at the cottage near the, sea, near the ocean. We walk on the beach, jump in the waves and fly kites. The wind makes me feel alive. I fill my pockets with sea glass. When I get home, I make pictures with the bits of glass. I like how the sea and I both make something beautiful from broken pieces. Maybe the spirit does that too. By midsummer, our garden is full of good things, almost too full. There is more than we can use, so we share with our neighbors. 
We bring baskets of carrots and beans to our community food bank. We make casseroles and freeze them. If someone needs a meal, we are ready. It feels good to know that the seeds we planted are bearing fruit. Bees and butterflies visit our garden. We chose plants they love, black-eyed Susan, echinacea, bee balm. Without these tiny creatures to pollinate our trees and plants, we would have no flowers or fruit. Imagine a world without blueberry pie. We need them, they need us. We are all connected. We planted milkweed for the monarch butterflies. These tiny travelers have a long journey south. Our garden is a safe place where they can rest, lay their eggs, and feed their families. Butterflies are not the only ones that migrate. People do too. Some choose to move. Others have no choice. I try to imagine what it would be like to have to move. What would I carry with, with me? What would I leave behind? What would I miss most? I hope someone would make a safe place for me. One hot day, my friends and I sell homemade lemonade. All the money we earn, we give away to help families looking for safe places to live. We are far away, but we can still help. We need each other to do the work of Jesus. The spirit connects us all. Maybe I'll pause there. There is so much going on there. Um, one, I, I, I first and foremost just appreciate your ability to get really big ideas, big complicated ideas into a form that is digestible and understandable for for kids and for for younger readers. I think that is such an amazing quality. Um, and and it, it actually brings things to life for me as an adult in in ways that I hadn't considered. Um, one of the things that um, one of those places and, and you didn't this wasn't part of what you read but there's a there's a there's a piece where you're talking about um jesus coming back mm -hmm. and and then jesus leaving again as you're as you're talking about ascension mm -hmm. and you're talking about the how complicated the emotions must have been for the disciples of 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 why would Jesus come back and then leave again and mm -hmm. and and the hurt and the fear that they must have felt and I I I honestly think that's one of the the better descriptions of of that feeling of ascension that I've I've actually seen committed committed to print. Um, I, I I'm wondering like what the thought process is for you as an author as you're as you're trying to to make these big theological concepts um, apply and 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 to a to a young person's world how, how do you how do you make that move to to these these big ideas and these big concepts and these complicated stories to something that feels so real and so tangible and so present like what's that what's that process like for you 
That's a really good question. And it's also a hard one to answer because it's so intuitive. Mm. Um, I, part of it for me is the wondering. I've, I've always been a wonderer um, in the sense of asking, I mean, I'm curious about things that I can get answers to, but I also like to wonder about things that there are no answers for, and I'm okay with that. So, um, you know, in, in a book like Breathe, when I'm working with specific biblical passages, which I've chosen, um, I start just by um, doing kind of a wondering brainstorming thing where I sit down with blank paper and the text and I read it and I just, I just see what questions pop into my own mind. I try to approach it with as much freshness as I can, which sometimes because of my background in New Testament, sometimes I, that academic stuff gets in the way, but I'm getting better at sort of setting that aside and just saying, okay, you know, what am I, what are my senses telling me about this text? Are there things that make sense to me about it? Um, what do I want to know about it that I, that I can't? And, and this, this question that you mentioned, I mean, you talked about it in terms of complexity of emotions. For me, it was, it all boiled down and it is, it's a process of distillation, right? Like I, I have these masses of ideas and words too, always too many words. And I just have to boil them down, boil them down until they turn into something that hopefully is um, maybe even more potent than, <laughs> than, what, than how it started out. But the question, how on earth can Jesus promise his friends that he's going to be with them always and then turn around and disappear again? Like, for me, there's a real question of trust there. Mm. And I, I think that might have been a question that, that I've carried with me from childhood. Um, but whether whether I was actually remembering it or whether it just arose in me, it seems like a really honest and natural question that comes out of that story. Yeah. Like, wh what, does that, what does that mean? Is that not contradictory? Um, and I, I really like what um, Catherine Peterson, the illustrator, did with she has a single illustration for the kind of the resurrection appearance and then this surprising and shocking announcement about Jesus leaving again she's got the disciples clinging but there's both the the joyful oh my gosh you're back kind of clinging and then you're what you're, 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 no no um so the hanging on to and that mixture of emotion I think um, she's managed to capture in one image. Yeah, and it, I should also just note that it's beautifully illustrated um, throughout. Um, and and I, I, that so resonates with me that, that a lot of the deconstruction, I guess you could say, that I've done of my faith as an adult mm -hmm. is, has been returning to the questions that I had about the scripture as a child. Mm -hmm. And like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> wait a minute. And, and instead of taking it kind of blindly, actually being able to sit with those questions. Well, it was funny. I was having a conversation with a friend the other day. We, we had both just finished reading um, Faith After Doubt, Brian McLaren's mm -hmm. new book. And we were sort of reflecting on our own backgrounds. Um, and I was thinking about the way Bible stories were presented to me when I was a child, 
you know, I, I got some in Sunday school. And, but for the most part, because my friend was saying that th they all came to him with um, this sort of heavy burden of interpretation sitting on them. Um, for me, my, my parents used to read to me out of this gigantic golden Bible that was, or the golden books Bible that was published in the mid 60s. Um, and it was basically the, the RSV, but with lots of illustrations. And so they would read to me at night, I was an only child, kiss me goodnight. And then I'd be free to think about them and wonder about them and ask any and it was all happening in my own head. So there was nobody saying, No, you shouldn't ask that question or no, that's not what this means. And I think that as an as an adult, I kind of go about things in the same way I because I had this tremendous freedom to ask whatever occurred to me. Sure. Um, yeah. I think it's a wonderful, one, maybe one of the best gifts that we can give children is the mm. space to ask those kinds of questions. Yeah. Um, one of the things, one of the other just kind of big themes that that this book um, helps us deal with and, and, and actually kind of a theme that we deal with a lot on the show um, is you really highlight a lot of the agrarian images that are used in the scripture. Um, and one of the things that we've talked a lot about um, in recent episodes is that people are so disconnected from where food comes from that a lot of the agrarian images of the Bible tend to fall flat because we're, we're just not in the same world as, as, as the writers. But your writing actually kind of puts us back into the natural world and, and not in a way where we need to understand farming mm -hmm. or understand, you know, uh, uh, first century agricultural techniques or anything like that, but in a way where we're, we're being mindful of, of the natural world around us and, and paying attention to the ways that that actually brings the scripture to life for us. I, I absolutely love that piece at the end uh, of what you just read, where you come at the, the fruit of the spirit, which is a pretty popular and, and, and sometimes overused text, mm. but you start with the tree. You start with us as a tree, yeah. Um, and and that again for me changes uh, because it, it actually merges uh, several biblical images yeah. of, of of us as 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 trees. As you know, think of uh, uh, being a tree planted by the water, and uh, and 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 so it actually merges several. Um, uh, biblical images there for this wonderful understanding of, of fruits of the spirit. And I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering how have these natural uh, images, I mean, it seems to have been, it seems to be very uh, formative for, for your faith. It seems to be very central to your faith. How are these natural images and your, your, your life in nature, um, how is that feeding your spiritual life and how is that feeding your spiritual understanding? I think that nature, um, and I should say that I wouldn't even describe myself as a particularly outdoorsy person. Like I'm not, you know, I, 
I have a little garden in my backyard and I used to help my dad when I was a kid and and I enjoy being outside but I'm not you know I'm not hardcore wilderness camp yeah I, I I also would not describe myself as outdoorsy <laughs> <laughs> So I just don't want to give up. Let's just be very clear about that. I hate camping. Like I, I, so I don't want to give any false advice. Um, but there is a sense in which the cycles of nature and becoming um, attuned to them and aware of them, even in small ways, has given me a really profound sense of belonging. Mm. like belonging to the material world of which I'm a part. And I've tried to pass that on to my own children, even in small ways, like, um, you know, with the gardening, my dining room is taken over at the moment by all kinds of coffee cups with little tomato seedlings coming up. And I don't know what I'm going to do with the beans because we started them too early and now they're wanting to climb, but it's, <laughs> it's too early to put them outside. So, you know, all this stuff's a work in progress. But but I, I remember as a child going out with margarine containers and collecting um, soil and little bits of moss and seeds that I would find in the spring and being so astonished when they germinated and watching that like there's just something if we can get in touch with that in ourselves there's something amazing about that um the other day i was talking um to someone about um good friday celebrating good or if not celebrating but um yeah. observing moving through good friday with children and i was saying that of, of any day in the liturgical year that's a day to let the story stand and don't try to put all kinds of heavy interpretation on it, like just feel it. And one of the things that I remember doing with my own kids is getting a pie plate and putting uh, topsoil in it and then sprinkling grass seed over it on Good Friday. And then just watching over the next days, those seeds start to germinate and the grass grows. And somebody, somebody said to me once, well, you know, what do you say to, I said, you don't have to say anything. Like just the mystery of this happening is awesome mm -hmm. for, for children and, and it, for adults too, if we can allow ourselves to notice it yeah. and experience it. So I, I think that, yeah, those, those natural cycles and the, the wonder and the sense of awe that our world generates in me has become more and more essential to my own spiritual life. Yeah, I, I, I totally resonate with that. I, I think even having learned, and, and in the last year, I've learned so much of the science mm -hmm. behind the, the, you know, what happens in my garden there's still this place that just okay like i know technically why it happens it's still amazing that it happens and i think that's one of the things that our our a lot of our um modern interpretations of faith are lacking is awe and mystery mm -hmm. and i think the natural world actually helps us rediscover both of those things yeah absolutely 
So um, food shows up a lot in this book. And mm -hmm. it's, so it's a wonderful, uh, which is a wonderful thing. And one of the things that I love about it. Can you talk to us about the ways that food shows up in this book and, and, why, did, and why you used food in the way you, ways you did? Sure. Um, I guess I, I would say food shows up in, in at least three main ways. Um, one is connected with community building. Mm -hmm. So the way people can grow food together, um, prepare food together and eat together. So there's, yeah, there's a whole lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of picnics. There's a lot of meals, people sitting down at tables together. Um, and potential to, to take the book and extend it in activities. Like I was trying to think of things that you could do that are socially distanced. And um, I came upon this idea for a Pentecost salad where different households have small container gardens where they're like just even pots where they're just growing something like a pepper plant or a tomato plant. And then um, sort of checking in with one another about how those things are proceeding. And then when the time is right, combining them. <laughs> That's a great idea. Yeah, I thought it was kind of cool. Um, again, you already mentioned this sort of becoming more conscious of, of where our food comes from, because, well, sometimes we just don't think about it. And sometimes children don't know. I mean, I, I worked in a Montessori school for a while, and I was sitting down at the table for lunch one day, and one of the little kids said, where does, where, where did our lunch come from? And I thought he meant, which caterer? <laughs> <laughs> then I realized, no, he actually had no idea how the food got there. And mm -hmm. so I thought, oh, okay, <laughs> we need to have some conversations here. Um, and that can be incorporated into a family mealtime ritual where you actually think through and talk about, well, how did, how did each element of our meal actually get to our table? And how many hands did this have to pass through to... Um, so the other part of, of the, the community there, though, is, um, I guess, food as a form of, of care, an expression of care for people who can't be physically present um, for a whole bunch of reasons. But thinking back over this past year, I actually had COVID in December. Oh, wow. And so there I am, I'm isolated in my room. I'm not supposed to leave my room. And I have three kids. Fortunately, they're they're older, but even so, they still need some support. And, you know, one day I get this text from a neighbor I don't know particularly well, and she says, um, send your kids out to the porch in 15 minutes, there'll be a meatloaf there. Oh, wow. Um, so the, these, it's just such, food is such a tangible and practical expression of care. I, there's nothing... There's nothing quite like it. I mean, we need to eat <laughs> yeah. and to know that somebody has taken the time to prepare a meal for you is really profound. And, and doing that with your kids, let's say for somebody else, is also powerful. Um, food also shows up in Breathe through the theme of caring for the environment. So I read the section about, excuse me, planting the pollinator garden. Mm -hmm. um, you already mentioned fruits of the spirit, um, being outside as a way of becoming more mindful of the natural world. Now, I, I say this conscious that it, that's a lot easier to do if you live in a place where you have ready access to green space. Sure. You know, 
that's if you if you're 15 minutes from the beach that's awesome um, <laughs> if you're in the if you're in the middle of an urban center it's a little different but even so there's there's always the even the option of, of looking up and doing the cloud breathing that there's a reference to you know um, matching your breath to the movement of clouds feeling the wind the rain um, even in little ways just becoming more connected to the natural world um, because the, I think that that helps to generate that awe you were talking about and then and then the sense of of care and responsibility that comes from it um, so so yeah there's there's the the community part the connection to the environment um, and then you can take that further step um, and breathe kind of um, moves on to express that connection in terms of the divine mystery of incarnation so the the outpouring of the spirit that is in and through all things and that's where you know i play a lot with different metaphors of the spirit so the wind that makes flags and banners dance the spark that burns the hole through your blanket when you're sitting around <laughs> a campfire um, the compost heap where all these discarded bits turn into something life-giving um, and then in the end, at the end of the book, there's explicitly Eucharistic imagery. So not just the elements of bread and wine to which we're connected, but the people who are gathered to share it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and it's, it's all fantastic. And, and, and even, even in the, the gardening piece that, you know, that you read earlier of the idea of the garden producing so much abundance that there's, that there's some to share and, and how that connects us to other people. And um, there's just so many wonderful images of the ways that food can, can build community, build relationship, um, build intimacy, um, remind us of our connection to God and to each other. Um, it's really wonderful. Um, I'm wondering if we can conclude with, um, would you mind reading uh, from the Time to Grow section that, that wraps up the book? I would be happy to read that. <clears throat> so this is the last, the book has four sections and this is the ending. Summer is turning to autumn. I feel it in the cool evenings. I see it in the clear blue skies and yellow goldenrod. I hear it in the cries of geese heading south. In our garden, pumpkins are green on the vine. By next month, they will be brushed with orange. The milkweed is heavy with fat pods, bursting at the seams with feathery seeds. I wonder where the wind will carry them. Before the new school year begins, my church has another picnic. There is fresh corn and lots of berry pies, the sweet harvest of our gardens. We also share bread and wine, just like in church. Someone reads the words of Jesus. I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me and you will bring forth much fruit. We also hear part of a letter from Paul. I remember Paul and how he got that name. Paul says that when we share this meal, we need to remember that we are all one body, the body of Christ. When I taste the bread and wine, I imagine that I am eating everything that makes things grow. Earth, air, sun, rain. 
the spirit that gives life to everything is in me too. Around me, I see the faces of my church family. Some I've known my whole life. Others are new. People come and go, but we are all connected to each other and to Jesus. We are all like cells in one body, growing and changing, part of something bigger. The same spirit breathes in all of us. I used to wonder how Jesus could go away and yet promise to be with us always. Now I'm starting to see. The spirit that was in Jesus is in us too. We are his body now, his way of being in the world. Whenever we choose kindness, make peace, live gently, show patience, feel joy, give love, Jesus is there, always. The spirit is like those seeds and like the breath of the wind that carries them. It is within us and beyond us. I am part of this. The spirit is in me too. You are part of this. The spirit is in you too. I wonder what kind of fruit I will bring to the world. This is the growing time. It's beautiful. It's just, it's so beautiful. And I, I think it's, you know, the message of there our connectedness, our connectedness to each other, our connectedness to God, our connectedness through the spirit, um, our connectedness to the natural world. Um, it just feels, it feels like the right message at the right time. Um, and just so beautifully presented uh, in this book. And it's a great gift to have you read it to us uh, in part um, and, and to have you share a little bit of what's on your heart and mind as you as you created it and as you um, put it out into the world. Um, so where can where can people find this book and where can they find other other works that you've done? Well, you can find Breathe. Um, you can order it from the publisher, which is um, ParacletePress.com. Um, it's also available through Barnes and Noble. Um, it will be available through Amazon once it officially releases on April 13th. Um, for any Canadians out there, it's also on Chapters Indigo. Um, and um, most, of my, most of my other books are available the same way through Amazon, although um, I've had a few distribution issues. <laughs> uh, I think, actually, I think that Breathe is also, um, you can purchase it through bookshop.org. Excellent. I'm pretty sure. And where can people connect with you? Um, I have my own website, which is lauraallery.ca. So that's L-A-U-R-A-A-L-A-R-Y.ca. I am also on, uh, I have a Facebook author page, um, at Laura Allery Author. I am on Instagram at laura.allery and Twitter at Laura Allery One. 
think that covers, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's just about all of them. Um, well, thank you, Laura, again, for coming back. Thank you for sharing this wonderful work. Um, I hope that you will come back again if you have uh, more things to share with us, because it's just always a joy to have you. Um, and, and I just, I really just love reading your work. I, I don't know that I've had as much joy reading uh, uh, children's books since I was a child myself. So thank you so much for, for being with us. It's been a pleasure, Derek. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep Until. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.